You're listening to audio from Living Grace Church in Tyler, Texas. To find out more about Living Grace, go to livinggracetexas.org. It's a great privilege to be with you. It's been good to get to know Kai and Jamie in recent weeks and months, and just to see his passion for the city of Tyler, and I really appreciate that. We need more of that in Tyler because there's a lost and dying world all around us, and we have neighbors and friends and family who don't know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need brothers and sisters around this great city to reach out, to be the Lord's hands and feet and to uh, make much of him in this world. So it's been a pleasure to meet like-minded brothers and sisters in the city of Tyler serving alongside them uh, for the glory of God's name. Now, as Kai mentioned, I understand you're in the series of on the attributes of God, which is an amazing series. I imagine you've, you've learned a lot over over the weeks and months, perhaps, that you've been in it. So he has asked me to continue that by considering the fact that God is holy, which is something that I feel utterly inadequate to do because this is a concept that is so beyond us in so many respects. But I will do my best, and by God's grace, um, hopefully we will see him more clearly in ourselves in light of him through this. So in order to do that, though, we're going to need God's word. So let me invite you to open up Isaiah The book of Isaiah, chapter 6. I'm going to make a few comments in chapter 5 in a moment, but chapter 6 will be, in large part, what we'll be looking at today. I don't know about you, but when you think of the holiness of God, there are probably certain passages that come to your mind. And perhaps, if you're like me, one of those passages is Isaiah chapter 6. This chapter has been called the classic passage on the holiness of God. It's been described as the climactic Old Testament portrayal of God's holiness. So there's always been these incredible accolades for this chapter. And I suspect that even if you don't recognize the reference off the top of your head, there will be verses within this chapter that are indeed quite familiar to you. There's a couple in particular. For example... Even if you've never read the chapter, even if you've never studied the chapter, you will find verse 4 sounding very familiar. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know that verse. We sing that verse, right? We, we declare that verse to the Lord, I'm sure, with great frequency. And if you jump down to verse 8, you see another one that's thrown uh, around quite a bit in conversations, particularly as they relate to the call to missions. We have a question there, whom shall I send? And many a missionary has responded to that, crying out, here I am, send me. So these are verses that are inspiring to us. They're memorable. They are verses that we find put on bumper stickers and t-shirts and inexpensive frames along houses and churches and the like. And yet, while there are aspects of this chapter that are quite familiar, I suspect, there are a few people that have really dived in and studied these verses in their original context. Now, that context is very vast. It's far more vast than we can do justice to in one sermon But we can hit at least some of the highlights this morning as we seek to understand the Christian experience in light of the holiness of God. So a little background I think will help. First of all, you may know this, but just to start from the beginning, Isaiah is a prophet of God. So he has been in service to God, declaring the word of God to the people of Israel back in the days of the Old Testament. So he is one of God's prophets. And this passage is sometimes described as the call of Isaiah into ministry, but that's not quite accurate 
because even before Isaiah chapter 6, there is, there is ministry that Isaiah is doing for the Lord. This is certainly a unique event in Isaiah's life. It's a commissioning for a specific task in this scene. But even before chapter 6, he is already engaged in ministry. For example, if you back up into chapter 5, we have some very important context. In chapter 5, we have the prophet pronouncing judgment on the people of Israel again and again and again. He likens them to this vine that is failing to produce fruit. He's trying to describe the people of Israel as a people who's not bearing spiritual fruit. That is a problem. So the prophet in chapter 5 is really proclaiming this message of woe. Now, woe is one of those words I recognize we don't use a lot unless you happen to use, speak like Yiddish or something. It's not a word that we throw around a bunch. So what does it mean? Well, essentially, woe is describing this passionate cry of deep grief or despair. So it's not a good thing. The tone of chapter 5 is not a good tone. It's either an expression of personal devastation or in the context of prophetic declarations, it is a prediction of coming devastation because of the sin of the people. So if the prophet cries, woe, then it is time for you to get right with God. That's essentially the tone here. And in chapter five, there are six times where woe is declared to the people. They have accumulated wealth unjustly. So Isaiah says in verse 5, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field. They have given themselves over to drunkenness. So Isaiah writes in verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have been dishonest. So Isaiah writes in verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. They have become these moral relativists. So we read in verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. They were marked by arrogance. So the prophet says in the next verse, woe to those who, who, who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And social injustices were the norm of the day. So Isaiah announces a sixth woe in verse 22 and verse 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. It's a very depressing chapter. In light of this, there was a, a one writer, his name is Phil Riken. he writes this. He says, as we review Isaiah's lamentable list of woes, we may well wonder what the prophet would say to us. Maybe we would prefer not to know because most of us do not particularly enjoy having our sins exposed. But in all likelihood, Isaiah would say some of the same things to us that he said to ancient Israel. Woe to us for using our wealth to multiply selfish privilege, for abusing alcohol and other pre uh, pleasures, for bending the truth to improve our own image, for the shrinking the ethical teachings of Scripture to make it fit neater with our sinful desires. And woe to us for thinking that Isaiah 5 is mainly for someone else, someone we hope will finally listen, rather than realize that God is speaking to us too. We should not be wise in our own eyes, as Isaiah describes it, but admit that we, too, do not have it all together spiritually yet. Riken's right, I think. We don't. 
I think we would readily confess that, that we don't have it all together. So we would do well then to imagine ourselves in the shoes of the original audience here that Isaiah is writing to in an effort to heed Isaiah's call to repentance. And if, it, if we had been Jews in that particular day, having just heard six different woes, we would probably be wondering, where's the seventh? Because in Judaism, seven is a very important number. And so if they hear six woes, they're probably expecting there's going to be a seventh woe. And yet we get to the end of the chapter and there's no seventh woe. But yet he's not done yet. So if we're asking, where is the seventh? He's not done yet. There is a seventh, but that woe doesn't drop until chapter six. Chapter six, verse five, look there. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So think about how, how all of this then holds together. In chapter 5, Isaiah goes around saying, woe to you guys over there, and woe to you over there, and woe to you over there, woe to all of you people, but he's not done yet. The prophet's not done yet until he sees the sin in his own heart as well. We can't go around, he can't go around pronouncing judgment on the people around him and remain ignorant of the brokenness in his own soul as well. We are in this together, right? People and prophet, parishioners and pastors. We're all big sinners in need of the same grace and mercy. But let's not move on too quickly from Isaiah's confession. Notice the area of Isaiah's life that he brings forth as exhibit A of his brokenness. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. It's his mouth, his speech. That's incredible. And in one respect, it might be a little unexpected. Now, if you know your Bibles pretty well, you might think, well, yeah, actually that makes perfect sense because oftentimes in the writing of Jesus or the, the teaching of Jesus, the writings of Paul, the writing of James, other places, we see the mouth is often the litmus test, the proof of the condition of our heart. So there's a connection between the words that we speak and the condition of our hearts. But in another respect, this is unexpected. Because if you had asked an Israelite in that day to name a person that you could count on to speak the truth, they would have pointed to the prophet, the prophet of God. And if you had asked Isaiah to name an area that he would have considered the most surrendered to God, he likely would have pointed to his mouth because he was a prophet. He was a spokesman for God. He had been proclaiming the word of God to the people of God. And yet here in this scene, he confesses himself as a foul-mouthed sinner. He had failed in that one area of his life that he was perhaps most surrendered over to God. And upon seeing this, he cries out, woe is me. He has realized that he too was a failure like the people, even in the one area that he would put forth the most effort to remain committed. So he comes clean. But what was it that helped him to see his sinfulness what was it that brought this prophet of God to his knees in anguish? The answer is the holiness of God. 
Have a look at how Isaiah depicts this vision that he has at the beginning of chapter six, verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is an amazing scene. Isaiah has seen a vision of Almighty God. And in John, in the New Testament, the book of John, chapter 12, verse 41, Isaiah 6 is actually alluded to, and there we are told that he saw what the prophet saw was Jesus' glory when he spoke about him. So on the basis of that text, there have been many scholars who have argued that what Isaiah is describing here is the Son of God on his throne. Isaiah was seeing the awesomeness of God in the person of his Son, and everything that surrounds him is absolutely breathtaking. From the train of his robe that fills this heavenly temple, because there's no room for any other train, any other kingly robe, to the shaking of the doorpost, to the sound of his voice, to the smoke that it all produces. It is breathtaking. So no wonder these seraphim, which, by the way, in the original language here, Hebrew, that means literally burning ones. So I don't know what you think of when you think of angelic beings, but these beings, you can imagine like six-winged creatures, and they're called burning ones. Imagine them on fire or something. That's how glorious these beings are, and yet these beings, these glorious beings were flying around with two of those wings worshiping the Lord, and what are they calling to one another? Holy, holy, holy is the whole, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, in the original language here, there's no punctuation, so you can't just add like an exclamation point to make it you know, holy, holy, holy. You can't do that, right? And so there are ways that you can make things emphatic. They didn't have that kind of punctuation. They didn't have emphatic emojis or anything like that. So if you wanted to emphasize something, you repeated it. And here we see the word holy repeated three times for good measure. They are celebrating God's absolute holiness, but not just then, even now. Even now, right now before the throne of God, the same thing is happening. In the final book of your Bible, John writes of these four living creatures, each with six wings. They're full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Sound familiar? That's Revelation 4, verse 8. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's just like Isaiah 6. 
These creatures have been worshiping in this way since they were created. This is their employment. This is their job, their vocation. Their job is to give voice to God's infinite holiness. That's what they were doing in Isaiah's day. That's what they were doing in John's day. That's what they're doing in our day. At this very moment, the heavens are shaking with cries of holy, holy, holy. Now think about that for a moment. It is God's holiness that is most supremely celebrated by those in closest proximity to his throne. His holiness. Perhaps that's why Thomas Watson referred to God's holiness as the most sparkling jewel of his crown, his holiness. Of all the attributes of God that we could consider, it is his holiness that these angels are calling the most attention to. They're not crying out, love, 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 though God is love. They're not crying out, truth, 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 though God is truth. They're not crying out, mercy, 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 though we know God as merciful. They're crying, holy, holy, holy. His holiness. I think the reason for this is captured well by Stephen Lawson. He wrote this. Everything about God is absolutely holy. And this one attribute uniquely defines his other attributes. His love is a holy love. His justice is is a holy justice. His mercy is a holy mercy. Holiness gives shape to every other divine attribute. Everything about God is marked by his absolute holiness. This one characteristic is the sum and substance of his entire being. In reality, holiness is wholly comprehensive of all that God is. Now, if that is true, then we have to pause and to consider what it means when the scriptures declare to us that God is holy. Perhaps you've heard it said that the original word here means to be separated, to be separate, set apart, something like that. That's true. It does. And so often this language is used of items or even people who have been set apart for a special purpose. But when we look to the scriptures and we ask, how is holy used when it's describing God himself? There are usually two ways that holiness is used to describe God. Sometimes I read a book recently, he he differentiated it between what he called the metaphysical realities and moral realities. Now, those are weird words, so let's break that down. Here's what he means. When, When the scriptures speak of God being holy, generally they're stressing either on the one hand his transcendence, his otherness, he is set apart and highly exalted, so above anything that he has made, so that could be emphasized. Or on the other hand, his absolute freedom from the corruption of sin, right? His transcendence or his freedom from imperfection and impurity. Now, if we wanna make it really simple, think about the prayer that sometimes young children are taught when they're learning to pray. Sometimes we give them opportunities to pray before you know, a meal at the dinner table, and they might pray a simple prayer like, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. We just think it's a simple prayer, it rhymes, but it's actually very good theology. He is great, 
meaning he is above all things. He is a being without comparison. There is no one like our God. And he is good. He is morally perfect. He is without sin in every sense of the word. So in other words, he is great, he is good, and in that sense, he is holy. Because when the Bible speaks of divine holiness, it is stressing usually either his greatness or his goodness or sometimes both. And in this context, it's definitely both elements that stand out to us. The response of the seraphim here reminds us of God's absolute greatness, and the response of Isaiah reminds us especially of his absolute purity. Consider the seraphim first. These angelic beings who themselves are morally pure, they're not sinners. They have not sinned against God. They're morally pure, and yet they cannot bear to look upon the Lord because of the sheer glory of his holiness. So they cover their faces with two of their wings, and they cover their feet with two of their wings. That's how transcendent God is. Then you throw Isaiah into the mix, and he is utterly undone. Why? Because secondly, the brightness of God's holiness in terms of his moral perfection brings to light the woeful filthiness of our sinfulness. God's holiness exposes us. It exposes our sinfulness. To be in his holy presence is to be exposed, to see yourself aright, to see yourself rightly. And that is not a pleasant thing to experience as sinners. It's devastating. It provoked the violent reaction we see in Isaiah here when he says, woe is me, I am ruined. In a single moment, all of his self-esteem was shattered. He's utterly undone. There's no hiding it. Nothing can he bring to cover up his own moral filth before a holy God. And indeed, he's going to say later in Isaiah 64, verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The prophet there, he's not speaking of our, our, our worst deeds that are like polluted garments and filthiness before God. He's talking about our righteous deeds. The best that we could bring before God is but a filthy garment, a filthy rag in light of God's holiness. That was the prophet's experience. And that's every person's experience, in fact. Here again, I think Riken has some helpful remarks. It is wise for each of us to consider whether we have come to a similar place in our lives, making a complete confession and admitting without reservation that we are sinners in the sight of God. Isaiah's trouble was not just his sin or this sin or that sin. It was his very identity as a sinner. He would never be holy enough for God. Anyone who catches even one glimpse of God's true holiness knows immediately that he or she is in deadly peril. So let me ask, have you ever been where Isaiah was when he found himself woefully lost? Have you seen enough of the holiness of God to know that you are a guilty sinner? It's not just that, that the, the bad things that you did that, that make you feel guilty about or the bad things you do that we can't stop doing or all the good things that we should do but we don't know. It, it's the trouble we're in because of the sinner's 
we are. He goes on to describe the response then to the guilt, our response, what it should be when we recognize this. And I think this text, again, beautifully illustrates this. It shows us something of our part and something of God's part. Let's start with our part. Our part is to recognize and admit our brokenness. That's our part. Stop pretending. Just admit that you're a mess, that you're a sinner in need of a savior. The gap between your sinful condition and God's perfect holiness is larger than we can even conceive. And again, Isaiah's example is instructive. The area of his life that he could have prided himself as most righteous was dedicated, that he was most dedicated in, that one area, his mouth, becomes the case in point that gives evidence of his utter sinfulness. I am a man of unclean lips. So in saying this, he is admitting that he is a mess everywhere. Everywhere. There is no area of his life that is untouched by sin. So he confesses this before the holy God. All he can do is acknowledge his guilt. But fortunately, for Isaiah, God does more than just declare the prophet guilty. God can do something about our guilt. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Imagine those last words for Isaiah. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. He has seen his sin. He has sensed his guilt. He has repented before God. God forgives his sin and removes his guilt. It reminds me of that verse in the New Testament that says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, I hope that hits you like, like these words must have hit Isaiah. What a comfort those words are. But in addition to this, we are reminded in these verses that there must be sacrifice. There must be blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. How do we see that? Well, where did this coal come from that touches Isaiah's lips? It comes from the altar. And if we think of the altar, I mean, we, we're not used to an altar like this. But in that day, they were very familiar with the altar that was in the temple. That's where the sacrifices for sin were made. So you see, in this act, there is this object lesson, a reminder that a lamb was slain, blood was spilt, a judgment fire was lit, and then, and only then, as a result of that, Isaiah's troubles could be over. This was what Isaiah was being reminded of, and all of this is meant to foreshadow the ultimate sacrifice the forgiveness of sin that removes our guilt fully and finally, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. As one writer explains it, all of this grace is available to us in Jesus Christ. When we are in trouble because we are guilty, not if, but when, there is a way for us to be saved. The moment we confess our sin, God flies to us with his forgiveness. The Holy Spirit takes the atonement that Jesus accomplished and he applies it directly to our sin. Pride, jealousy, lust, greed, theft, dishonesty, prejudice. Jesus dealt with all of our troubling sins on the cross. 
And because of the cross, we no longer need to say, woe is me. Instead, we can say, thank you, Jesus. Then and only then will we be ready to say with Isaiah what he says next. Here I am. Send me. So what we're seeing in Isaiah is the gospel acted out before the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're being prepared for the work of Jesus Christ and its impact on sinners like us. It is pointing us to the Savior, just like all of God's word, pointing us to the Savior, Jesus Christ, inviting us to see his holiness and our sinfulness and to confess our guilt and need and to receive his intervention through faith in Jesus, his free gift of grace. And when we do, the woe can give way to thanks. We are made new, counted as holy, brought into a right relationship with God, and even sent out in his service. It is a beautiful pattern and trajectory of the gospel. It's just like that for us, as it was for Isaiah in those terms. Now, let me show you a visual of this that I think will help us understand this. I remember years ago, I encountered a resource by Robert Thune and Will Walker. It was part of a curriculum series that, that was called uh, the Gospel-Centered Curriculum or something like that. I've kind of picked up on this imagery and adapted it a little bit for our purposes. But take a look at the first image. It uh, looks something like this. This is meant to be something of a depiction of our experience as Christians. As Christians, there comes a part of our life, a point in time, when we encounter the fact of God's holiness, and in the face of it, we also sense our own depravity, our own sinfulness. You can't stand, you can't sense something of the holiness of God and not feel sinful by comparison. That doesn't happen, right? So there comes that point where we see something of his holiness and we grasp something of our sinfulness. And so the, the upward line here represents our understanding of God's holiness, which over time begins to increase and increase if we are believers. The downward line represents our awareness of our sinfulness, which again, over time, increases and increases. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that God's holiness increases over time. It does not. He can't be any more holy than he is now and has always been and will always be. He is holy. What I am saying is that our awareness of his holiness and our understanding of his holiness grows as we mature in the faith. And I'm not suggesting that our sinfulness increases as we grow in the faith. What I am suggesting is that our awareness of our sinfulness does increase. People may look at us and they might say, Wow, you're not doing the things you once used to do, those sinful things you were known for. Praise God. But you are sensing more and more how sin has touched your life as you mature in the faith. People who knew you may see it less, but you're noticing that the root of sin in your life is deeper than you realized on the day of your conversion. Sin has burrowed into every crevice, every nook and cranny, as my grandmother used to say. Areas of our life that we didn't expect to ever detect as much sin, we discover have not gone unaffected. And this is why, for instance, someone like the Apostle Paul, who we would consider a very righteous man, one of the apostles of Jesus, and yet he can describe himself as the worst of sinners in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. He was sinning less, 
But as time elapsed, he had seen more and more of his sin than he did in previous days. So that's the point. You have an awareness of God's holiness at some point. This leads to an awareness of your own sinfulness, and that leads to a sense of this huge gap that is between you and God. But that, if that was the end of the story, that would be very bad news. But fortunately for us, God so loved the world that he gave his only son who bridges the gap by his cross. Look at the next image. So we have a cross here, and this is what, this is what keeps God's holiness and, sin, and our sinfulness from being bad news for us. Our sinfulness is forgiven because of the cross of Christ and the fact that his cross is empty because he lives today. Christ becomes the hero of our story. The cross becomes our anchor and our center Christ died on the cross as our substitute. He took upon himself our sin. He bore the wrath of God that we deserved, which issues from God's holiness. And he was condemned for sinners so that we wouldn't have to be. He rose from the dead victorious over sin, death, and hell. He works, his work is the basis of our salvation, not our works, his work. And if we trust in Christ alone to save us, that's faith, admitting our sin and our need for a savior and resting entirely in Christ alone for our acceptance before God, then God forgives and adopts us as his own. Sin's condemnation is removed and the chains of sin's bondage can be broken. That's how salvation works. We don't work for it. Christ did the work and we receive it freely through faith. As Thune and Walker put it, faith is like getting under the surgeon's knife. It's restful. It's this wholehearted commitment of the self to Jesus. This is what it means to believe the gospel, and this is the greatest news ever. If you're a Christian, it's your story. This is your story. If you're not, it can be your story today. If you would see God's holiness and you would see your sinfulness, your need in light of God's holiness, and you would turn from the false hopes of sin and trust instead in the saving work of Jesus. That's what Christian conversion looks like. And if we're going to plot that on the diagram, we might circle it somewhere around there. We have an awareness of something of God's holiness, an awareness of our sinfulness, an awareness of what Christ has done, and we believe on Jesus alone to remedy that separation. From the moment we trust in Christ, the cross bridges the gap between us and God. It allows us to see both the holiness of God and our own sinfulness and yet experience joy. Why? Because we have a savior. We have a savior. We can experience joy in life. We can experience joy in the storms of life because our greatest needs have been met. Our future is secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What good news. And as Christians, that is the news that defines us. It is central to our life and our worldview, and our self-image. It is central to our churches that we are a part of. It is our only boast. As Paul said to the Galatians, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. But the story doesn't end at our conversion. At that point, God sets in motion what the Bible calls sanctification. 
This is the process by which we become, we, we start to see the holiness of God materialize, work its way out in our own lives. We begin to look more and more like Jesus in time. And when we become Christians, it's as though we've been reborn. And so, just like in our physical life, there is this process of growing up. And all Christians are in that process. This maturation relates to what we've been discussing today. Because as we mature, we grow in our understanding and awareness of God's holiness even more. And again, we grow even more in our understanding and awareness of our own sinfulness. But remember the cross that bridges the gap. So even though our awareness of both God's holiness and our sinfulness seems to get bigger and bigger, again, not in reality, but in our understanding, our rejoicing and our appreciation of the work of Christ also gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what we see in the next image. So as we mature, we don't graduate from the gospel. We don't receive the gospel and then move on to bigger and greater things. No, this is it. This is the joy of our life. We are always fixated on the good news of Jesus. It becomes a bigger and bigger part of our everyday lives. That's Christian maturity. That's the Christian experience. At least it should be. It should be. But in reality, and this is true for all of us, it's true for me, it's true for your pastors, it was true for the apostles. Go read Galatians chapter two sometime and read how Paul had to rebuke Peter. It's true for all of us that we can deviate from our memory of such truths. We can shrink the cross, so to speak, in our minds. In other words, we can forget to reflect on these gospel realities and in time, something is lacking in our understanding or in our appreciation or in our application of Jesus' sacrifice for sin. Take a look at this next one. This is what shrinking the cross looks like. Now, we can do this in a couple of ways. One way is we can start pretending. And we have another slide for that, I believe. Pretending. We minimize sin and we start pretending that we're something that we're not. We defend ourselves and we learn to fake it. We hide or we downplay our true natures. We begin to play games of exaggeration and blame. You think of Adam and Eve, the very first humans. When they first sinned against God, the Bible tells us that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. What is that? That's shame. They felt exposed, which is what shame is. It's this feeling of exposure. And when we feel exposed, we feel like we don't belong and we run for cover. That's where sin often takes us. We feel ashamed and so we constantly try to cover up our shame so that people won't notice those things about us. But that doesn't really deal with our shame. That's shame dealing with us. That's pretending. But as Christians, that's also in a sense kind of shrinking the cross. That's forgetting the significance of the work of Christ. God knows everything about you, and he still loves the believer in Christ. His son came to redeem us, the real us. He loves us, the real us. Not some future version of us merely. There's no need then to pretend. We can go as far as Paul and admit that we're the worst sinner in the room. And let that become the prelude for our boast in Christ and him crucified. You see? The gospel 
frees us, when we understand this rightly, the cross of Christ, it frees us from our need to pretend. We don't have to pretend anymore. We can rejoice in God's grace and mercy. But here's another way that we shrink the cross sometimes. Not through pretending, but through performing. And if we boil it down, our performance is an attempt to to minimize God's holiness. So if pretending is an attempt to minimize our sinfulness, then, then performing is an attempt to minimize God's holiness. Why? Because we are reducing God's true standard to something that we think we can meet. And we live as though we're trying to earn or measure up and merit his favor. But friends, if we could impress God with our living, it is only because we have minimized the standard of his holiness. Once again, this is an inadequate view of our identity in Christ and the truth of the gospel. The Christian life is not meant to be a performance. It's meant to be like a record that plays the tune of repentance and believing the gospel, repentance and believing the gospel, repentance and preaching the gospel to ourselves again and again and again. It's this beautiful song without end that doesn't require us to ignore God's holiness or to ignore our sinfulness, but instead to boast in the cross of Jesus. And the more we sing it, and the more we sing it together, the more amazing the cross begins to look to us. And the holiness of God doesn't lead us then to perform anymore, but it leads us to rest in the perfect performance and track record of Jesus Christ, which is credited to our account through faith. We can rejoice because our standing with God today in Christ is not based on our performance. It's based on Christ's performance, which is perfect in every way. So we don't have to perform or pretend. We can celebrate the gospel instead. We don't have to shrink the cross. We can magnify the cross instead. We don't have to boast in ourselves because as someone has put it, the good news of the gospel is not that God makes much of us, but that God frees us to make much of Jesus. We don't have to put on a show. We can be real. We can confess, repent, believe the gospel, preach the gospel to ourselves when we fall. Do it again when we fall the next time. And again when we fall the next time. And we can find joy in this. The gospel can take deeper root into our lives. And Jesus and his cross become a bigger and bigger part of our day-to-day reality. We can stop shrinking the cross, drifting from the truth of the gospel. And we can get back to this instead. right? Where our boast in Jesus and his work grows and grows and grows and grows. That should be the Christian experience. And it can only be that way because, brothers and sisters, we have a sufficient sacrifice that has been offered by Jesus Christ. So may we rest in him alone. Let's pray together. Father, we we are so grateful that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, when we contemplate your holiness, we confess that we, we can barely scratch the surface of grasping even a glimpse of what it means for you to be holy. But even that is enough to just break us from any 
deceit of our condition in our own strength. But Father, we don't stop there. We look forward, as Isaiah did, to the Savior who you sent, your very Son, who lived a life we should have lived, who died the death we deserve to die, who rose from the dead victorious. He is our hope in life and death. We rest in him this morning. We praise you for his sufficiency, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us. Lord God, will you help us to understand this good news and to live rightly in light of it. Will you help us, Lord God? We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. We hope this helps you on your journey to glorify God by enjoying Him and making disciples who make disciples.